Hey everyone, welcome to the Rice People Podcast. On this show, we talk to the innovators, creators, and thinkers doing some of the most interesting things in Asia. I'm Adil, and this is Wong Lei. We dive into their journeys, learn how they think, and cover why they're doing what they're doing. We hope to provide you the inspiration and insights you need to forge your own journey. You can access all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources to keep learning at ricepeoplepodcast.com. Hey, hey, friends. Welcome back to the Rice People Podcast. If you're a regular listener and have been wondering where we've been for the past month, first of all, thank you for even caring and also supporting the podcast. Secondly, Wong Le and myself have been taking a couple of weeks off the podcast as we've been both been mad busy with our day jobs. But we are back and taking what we are unofficially calling Season 2 to new heights and might also be trying out some interesting things here and there on different episodes. So stay tuned for that. But without further ado, back to why you even clicked on this episode. Let me introduce our guest. On this episode, we spoke to Alan Wong, the co-founder and CTO at Ula, a fast-growing Indonesian startup looking to help digitize and empower mom-and-pop retailers, also known as warungs, in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. This was one of those conversations where I was left with like 10 different great, concisely articulated lessons and ideas that I think will stick with me for a very long time. And I hope you enjoy the podcast as much as we did. To jumpstart, could you share what is the founding story behind Ula and what is the problem you guys are trying to solve? Well, the two, those two, two, two big, big questions, right? <laughs> I, I think um, the, the founding story is, is really, um, I think both are very intertwined, right? The, the story itself is, I think, from the four founders, and, and I'll, I'll briefly um, talk about who I, I work with. Uh, one of the gentlemen uh, who is uh, the CEO, is uh, his name is Nipun. Uh, I've actually known him since the beginning of time. It's been 15 years. I worked with him uh, when I, in my first job at, at Amazon. That's where we met. And so I've known him for a long time. Uh, and then we have uh, Derry, who is uh, looking after the, the commercial side, the, both the supply and the demand side. And uh, he's been a, a PNG veteran. And uh, Ricky, who is a... Uh, Lazada veteran who uh, built up Lazada in Indonesia at the very beginning. So he looks after operations. But the the key is that these four very different people, I think, all com- came together to see this one one core problem of uh, this warungs and and small sh- small stores and small retailers uh, MSMEs in the Indonesia region or any developing country. And obviously, Darren and Ricky grew up with these uh, types of stores around them, so they saw them. As uh, as there there was a problem to solve. For me, it was out of genuine curiosity because I grew up in the West and I this was completely novel to me. <laughs> yeah, I've never yeah. seen this in my life, and so I was very curious about the problem. Uh, Nippon, uh, having grown up in India, saw this as in a different way. It's same problem, different context, but mm-hmm. very similar challenges as well. So I think we all, the four of us, rallied against this. But because of our, uh, I guess very different backgrounds and different approaches to the problem we, we actually came together and we have very complementary skills to tackle this this problem and you know what, what is what is the this problem overall right i, I think mm-hmm. is we 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 saw that the uh the, the challenge with these small retailers was procuring products for for their stores and how do you get these low-priced, high-frequency products, which is mostly FMCG, like mm-hmm. we're talking about food, uh, food products, snacks, drinks, uh, daily essentials, all those things. How do you get 
those uh, products distributed into the tier two, tier four cities of um, these uh, a developing country. It's you can't use traditional e-commerce for this. And so I think uh, with, with Ula, what we're trying to solve is how do we uh, bring a portion of this sourcing online so that these uh, the fabric of Indonesia retail, which is these small warungs, how do we keep them alive and how do we make them do business better, but not really changing what they do, but augmenting uh, how they do business, making them better and smarter. Amazing, amazing. And, and, and before we dive a little deeper into like uh, the business itself, right? we'd love to understand, you know, as you mentioned, you guys come from very, I guess, backgrounds of very relevant experience to what you're doing today, right? Amazon, PNG, mm-hmm. uh, Lazada is like e-commerce, FMCG itself. So like, we'd love to understand like if there were any key learnings that you all, you know, took out from these previous experiences that, that you, that for you guys were like essential to looking at this problem in this space. Yeah. Because wow. you guys had come from probably the other point of view of like e- the modern e-commerce solutions and serving the more of like consumer, but this is more like serving the business. Yeah. I think everyone has has their their key learnings, and like the key learnings are probably a a can write a volume in in a book. Um, I'll speak of my own, right? My my own learnings is very much adapted from Amazon, which I started off my career, and then it shapes a lot of who I am as a person. And one of those things that I did learn while it was was while I was at Amazon was customer centricity. If you build the right thing for the customer everything else will fall into place, whether it is margins, whether it's profits, whether it's it's retention. As long as you've got a right, the correct solution or a solution to a pain point, everything will work out. And I think uh, that's what made Amazon such a innovative and different company was that this problem solving approach. And I think we have embraced that in, in Ula and I uh, truly, I still believe it. And this is how we work on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, just to dive back into the business, we'd love to understand like in terms of that landscape itself, as you mentioned, like war rooms and all these kinds of things. Maybe you could help our audience, which I guess half of it are from Singapore, may not also have a context of uh, you know these uh, mom and pop shops and war rooms, mm-hmm. right? How people live their day to day lives uh, with these war rooms intertwined with their lives, and also mm-hmm. like how they were solving for this problem before Ula came along as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I that's that's a that's a good question i think uh i and i'm, I'm very well equipped to answer this because <laughs> yeah. I, I grew up in, in a situation very similar where you know if uh when i when i was growing up uh you when you went grocery stop uh, gro- to get groceries you would go to some place you know in canada we would go to probably a uh a, a loblars or, or michael's that's our local um chain in singapore you're probably used to going to fair price or, or cold storage wherever that is but <laughs> When uh, you're in Indonesia, and especially when you're not talking about a tier one city where mm-hmm. it's like Jakarta, uh, you're talking about a tier two or tier three, tier four city where we uh, come in as Azula to really change things around. The day-to-day of buying things is that you actually buy things day-to-day. And uh, the typical consumer is that uh, they'll buy on cash because they can't um, purchase big quantities of things because they have limited potential, limited cash potential. They're just buying their daily needs. Uh, whether this is buying rice, uh, buying 100, 100 grams a day or, or 200 grams a day, that type of deal, to small, um, these sachets of shampoo and conditioner. They don't buy oh, big wow. bottles. You just buy little I things. I had that when I was and, younger. Yeah, it, it's, it's, quite, it's quite amazing, right? And so um, 
this is the, the normal spending habit of the of the mm-hmm. typical consumer. And so they go to the corner store because that's the easiest thing to do. And you, you go to this corner store, and this corner store owner is really the our customer at this point. And the the what they used to do is that they stand in their store. They uh, they're open anywhere between ten and twelve hours a day, and they develop these really cool and deep customer relations like uh, you would never agree with me and say that you can walk into your fair price and then somebody <laughs> will know you by name no they don't know that right yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but these 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 uh, store owners they will they know their their communities because these uh, their customers are shopping with them every day or every other day so they have a really deep understanding of their customers and their local demand what does uh, you know the the lady down the street uh, you know her name might be Ibuasti you'll know that and then you'll know what her family, like who's in her family. You'll probably know even her, the age of her kids. Um, but it, it's also knowing about what do they want. And therefore, they, uh, these store owners know what to stock in their, in their stores. And because of these small stores and their, the cost structure is quite low, um, they're not employing anybody, unlike, unlike this fair price that you know, employs a, a bunch of people to work in there to stock shelves and whatnot. They're super cost efficient. So I think... From, from that perspective, that was how business was and why this these small stores had an advantage uh, in, in some way to the, the big grocery stores. And But it also comes with these pain points, right? And the pain points are what we, we try to solve, where being small is very hard to source. Like, no one ever comes to you and says, do you want to buy uh, stock some sachets of shampoo, right? It, it, it happens, but it's actually very hard to, to do this. Um, and so stocking inventory was actually uh, quite challenging, finding the right sources of inventory. Uh, they also face a lot of problems around unreliable delivery of how certain um, brands will deliver unreliably. You know, mm-hmm. they, they might come... Uh, they might come next day. They might come two days later. You don't know. Um, and and I think the the last of their their pain points is probably around working capital because every penny that they are uh, that they have is invested in the store. Because mm-hmm. if you want to sell a you know a, an additional dozen of eggs, you're actually pre-investing in these dozen of eggs to put mm-hmm. into your store to sell, right? So uh, they're they're basically investing their own personal money into this and their the size and the inventory of things that they can carry is only limited by how much personal wealth that they have. And so I, I think this is the the landscape of, of these pain points. And I think how we as a company address this is that we are one, one thing I think we, we've really nailed is our, um, our ability to deliver reliably. And as a business, you think about it on the other end, our, our customers really love this. The, the fact that we say we will be there tomorrow and we're actually there tomorrow with the goods that they actually ordered is a game changer. Like it sounds kind of weird <laughs> when when we expect this different things from uh, the, the red marts of the world, right? When, when yeah. you just deliver stuff or, uh, or, or grab, it's just so quick and instantaneous. Uh, this is very new to, to the customer segment that, that we operate in. And, and obviously we have an application which is, uh, a one-stop shop of an assortment of over 5,000, 6,000 different items for them to buy, which is unheard of. In the past, they would only get access to maybe 100 or 200 different SKUs. So um, the, the the vast uh, product variety is also very important to them. And 
you know, obviously on top of that is that because of the the way we work, we have competitive pricing and who doesn't like that. And, and we're starting with the new recent fundraises uh, approach going into this uh, buy now, pay later type of uh, mechanism to enhance the working capital situation. Um, so I, I think from, from that perspective, that's kind of where, what the landscape was in the past and, and where we are now and how we're trying to move this forward with, with what we're building. That is super interesting. Yeah, maybe just to to better understand it for our listeners. So Ula is sort of like a middle person sitting between the warung owner. And then on the other side, you have all uh, these multitudes of FMCG brands that you're just sort of building like a commerce platform where uh, warung owners can easily make all the purchases to restock whatever they have in their store on a single platform. And of course, yeah. offering a promised and on-time delivery. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. I, I think we're, we're like the, this connective tissue to allow the, the supply to be able to be discovered by all of the demand side and also for the demand to be able to discover supply. It's like this discovery mechanism that happens on this marketplace and, and that that's where we sit. And uh, the one thing that Willa offers on top of that is actually the fulfillment portion of this is that even after you discover the fact that you can purchase, uh, ship and deliver and pay is is the value prop that we add on top of this uh, this experience of discovery. And and like in terms of the early days when you guys were looking at this uh, opportunity to build this product, right? Like, I mean, from my understanding, it's also like quite a crowded space in Indonesia with multiple players trying to trying to tackle this issue because, of course, it's a giant market with a with a lot of uh, customers which need to be digitalized and and uh, you know progress in the space. What what did it feel like in those early days in terms of the opportunity to build an improved product, considering the the number of players in the space? So we'd love to understand a little bit about that uh, evolution of your product uh, from those yeah. the early days. I I think I would uh, I would go back to the the key learning I picked up from Amazon, right? Which is build a product that solves a problem for your your customer. I think that's that's the the key to everything. That like most of my answers will probably focus on that because it is the solution and and i think the early days we really did focus and follow that advice for ourselves was how do you get um somebody to try your service how do you make sure that mm. uh, uh somebody is is willing to to give it a shot and i think that was probably the biggest hurdle right um yeah yeah but but on on that note i think uh in in the in the early days it was uh, really heads down focused on solving for those value propositions that I mentioned earlier that um, we just really wanted to get the, the price in, in a place that was affordable. We needed a selection that was that was large and we needed to make sure our service and our delivery service and our fulfillment service was the was top tier. Uh, and I, I think we delivered in each one of these these categories and that's how we gained that initial following and over time that just just, just that just built right And I think, once you've gained a uh, a customer, they become your customer. They they come back to you, and there's no real reason for them to devolve into somewhere else. And you know, I'll make another comment of you know, you said it was a it's a it's a very big market, and I think that is 100% true. I, I would say it's a huge opportunity, which is actually helpful because it it means that not only one player can exist, it actually allows enough room for multiple players to exist. So. For us, we um, 
we, we built and we started up in, in Surabaya, which is on the uh, eastern side of mm -hmm. the Java Island. And for us, it was it was actually relatively peaceful there. Um, there was not <laughs> a lot of competition. We, we had free reign. And that still main, remains as our strongest and primary market because we, we gave it time to allow it to uh, build this relationship with our customer mm -hmm. uh, because we were relatively undisturbed. And I think that was probably one of the most uh, important pieces of this is just developing that relationship with these small stores mm -hmm. was maybe, maybe our, our strongest move yet was just going, going slow, going with the flow and making sure that we were able to develop a storyline together. And we weren't really developing this, uh, this, this rocket ship called Ula. And then we tried to get people on board. We, we built this rocket ship around our customers and making sure that they were cared for and they, they actually had something that they wanted to use. Super. I'm quite curious, how was the first customer, the first Warun, like getting that first Warun on board for the team like? So, uh, this is actually an interesting day and I remember it vividly on, uh, this was January uh, 20th um, and, and this is an evening, January 20th, this was uh, 2020, yes, um, we, we were sitting in a, in a cafe and a Dunkin Donuts in, in Surabaya somewhere and we were literally the the team the very very small team that we had was sitting in this coffee shop uploading the catalog to to this application okay and so we, we did this for a couple of hours we launched with 87 products on on the on the application and the very next day we took this application we ran around the city the city to go and try to sell the value prop and and actually and and actually sell to the uh, wild room owners um, obviously, I uh, at that time I didn't speak any Basa, and now, now my Basa <laughs> is still in the in the learning mode. Um, so I don't I don't speak it well, but um, my my teammates did right, and so we would go into the markets and, and just try to sell. And so spread across maybe we were I don't know six or seven teams that that day. Uh, we every 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 team captured a couple of customers and we actually got a got a couple of orders and it was quite interesting because we were able to see firsthand what worked and what didn't work so uh, I, I i wouldn't i don't actually know who the exact first customer was but uh my my i i remember that they i believe i our our team acquired four four customers which uh is it, it was hard it was hard work but um very thankful that i got the opportunity to go do that Wow. I mean, I guess that would have been like a very amazing feeling, like, you know, like you built this product from the ground up. Yeah, it was definitely a, a very fascinating experience, which are, 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 we've obviously refined over the over the months and years. But uh, we, we still do that on uh, like to, to today where we still go and and sell and, and pitch this this product. And um, it's this is how relations are uh, relationships are built. Nice. So how's your Bahasa uh, now? <laughs> I'm curious. How's your Bahasa now? Because you said uh, in January 20, 2020, it was not so good. What about now? <laughs> mm. <laughs> I, was, I was totally going to try to say That's something. The and then, and then, and then okay, I suddenly I got, got this, this, this pang of, of fear. But saya bicara sedikit. Ah, okay, okay. I can understand that. You know, it's close oh, enough yeah? to Malay. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I speak a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Wow. that's good. We 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 all speak a little bit, so I think yeah. I think that is that is good enough. Yeah, yeah, and and as you mentioned, right, like the nature of the product is, you know, there's a certain element of feet on the street that has to happen mm -hmm. to build this relationship with this 
customers, right? Would have to understand from you, like, what were some of these uh, unique challenges selling to this, uh, I guess, unique customer segment, right, of uh, warrooms and owners in this space? And also, if in terms of these kinds of products, I wonder if there's like any like I don't know subtle network effect that happens, you know, like I guess because these warroom owners are like a community and they know each other and and stuff like that, right? Is there like a you know us like planting a seed in one of them and then it starts spreading out by themselves? Mm-hmm. And yeah, we'd love to understand a bit about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the, the first question you asked about was like, just our model of, of, mm-hmm. um, being, you know, having a, a on the ground team to, mm-hmm. to, I guess, acquire our, yeah. our, our users. It, it's interesting because over time we've, we've started introducing, um, digital acquisition. And mm-hmm. I think, uh, that has its own dynamics and its own challenges, but the, the nature of Indonesia is a very communal community or 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 society almost necessitates this this human to human bond uh, when when you walk up to a uh, even though it's a very very friendly culture okay i'm mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gonna admit to that because as a foreigner myself i always feel welcomed there's still this distance you know mm-hmm. at, when, when you're not from there there's a distance and so even certain things that i have i have seen firsthand is that uh there, there's local languages all over the place, right? Uh, Bahasa Indonesia is the the official government recognized language, um, the national language. But in, uh, for example, on the east side of uh, Java, where uh, Surabaya is, there's a lot of local speakers that speak Javanese. And so, even the difference between speaking perfect Bahasa Indonesia as a native versus speaking Javanese, getting down that one level to to that <laughs> local friendliness and speaking Javanese creates and opens doors, right? So I think that level of relationship building, trust building, being able to uh, recognize, you know, tell stories about childhood. And even if you uh, and, and the local, I guess, uh, migration of, mm-hmm. of people is not very strong, not in like, like other countries. They usually stay within the, the general area. So if you find that person who literally grew up in the same area and they are able to bond over those childhood upbringing, you, you have this fantastic, fantastic uh, connection. And we really like that. We we see that is is it's integral to that that society, and it's part of doing business. So for us, I think uh, the the challenge there is um, being able to supplement our um, our our sales executives is what we call our feet on the street to give them the ability to make the most fruitful interactions with these with these warrooms. And and how I say that is, you know, a typical day a uh, a uh, sales executive will will travel all around the city and visit a lot of different stores. How are they going to remember all of these interactions on all these people? Some of them have very good memories, but again, we we see the the value of being able to instantly connect. And so we we have technology to allow our sales executives to even recall to know what the store mm-hmm. ordered last time. They'll they can ask easily about how did your did your order arrive? How did it, how did everything come? And it's like this this is conversation starters, right? It, it's very yeah, yeah. important. But uh, we, we do see the importance of the of this relationship that is human to human. Um, your second question was about something I forgot already. Yeah, whether there's any like any subtle like network uh, effect to mm. these kinds of businesses, right? Because as you yeah. mentioned, it's a very communal. <clears throat> I'm sure the warung owners are also, you know, know each other and are not too far apart from each other and all that, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah we'd love if you had a point of view on that. Yeah. 
it's it's funny to observe this because despite the communal aspect uh there's also a this nature of being competitive right you're you're on the same street and you're you're actually competing against each other because the products are relatively similar Mm -hmm. and really the it's a margin game so uh, if you can source your products at the lower price and you sell them at the same price and you make more money than your competition and so I think because of that, it's also an interesting dynamic that is between the warung owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, or actually many times, oftentimes we do service uh, warungs on the same street. They know uh, through our branding of our delivery vehicles who they're sourcing from, and so this is how our acquisition actually is is helped by that. But as a network effect, is someone going to tell their neighbor the secret sauce of how they're making yeah, money? Yeah. It, that that is it's actually a little bit lower. So it, it's quite interesting that even though if you build a good product, uh, the better you build it, the more people yeah, want to hide it away from some from their competitors. It's it's quite interesting. But wow, okay, uh, we okay. do have we do have multiple business models where where we're developing one that um, in like in in a, in a small silo, mm-hmm. which is more um, playing on on community effects, and I think. Uh, trying to understand that that nature that you were you were talking about of of the sharing. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do we how do we play more into that that dynamic? And I think uh, there'll be interesting things to to come in the next year. But uh, that's still very early on in, in our in our journey and experimenting and seeing uh, what works in in that segment. Yeah, yeah that's oh, that is a super Aww. interesting. Looking forward to that. <laughs> sound like it does sound like um, as a team you run um, quite a few experiments to to understand your customer to test out different products mm-hmm. do, do you think you can run us through like one such experiment and like an insight you got from that well uh, I mean experiments are I will classify into two different types of experiments experiments that are run in in the real world and in the digital world okay mm-hmm. um, I, I would We'll go with a, a digital world one because that's mm-hmm. the first thing that comes to mind when you say experimentation because I think about A-B testing in yep. the app, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe one of the things uh, to note is that if you've been to Indonesia, it wouldn't surprise you if I said Indonesia smokes a lot okay? because Indonesia does smoke a lot. And so um, the necessity of buying cigarettes for a small store is quite important. And so one of the things that, that we tried to see whether or not uh, you can influence buying behavior of cigarettes in the app by moving the cigarette category, either if it's the first category that you see front and center versus the last category that you cannot see and you have to scroll. And so we had a hypothesis that if we moved it, maybe we could influence human behavior and say, Maybe oh. maybe we'll 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 have Indonesian smoke less. We we don't wow. know, right? <laughs> so we would run this this. Uh, type of experiment and we ran it for two weeks and what do we find out we find out that the the, the pull of cigarettes <laughs> and the addiction of cigarettes is much higher yes. than it is to hide an icon so it was it was an interesting learning um but but that is that it is what it is right but we'll, we'll run things like this to yeah. see um just out of general curiosity um but that that was one example that that stood out to yeah, me yeah, as yeah. uh it, it was just a funny outcome right yeah, just, yeah, just yeah. knowing that um yeah. Uh, you, you can't really uh, change these addictive behaviors just by hiding an icon. Yeah, that extra swipe <laughs> is, is not 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 friction enough. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, that is super cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 we'd love to understand, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of these uh, warung owners. I'm sure there's a certain element of uh, education, or you know, 
of this new way of doing things that is required. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming as you've gone about and your sales executive is speaking to people, there's that I'm sure there'll be like a certain level of hesitancy uh, for people to adopt these products, right? So we'd love to understand, you know, like uh, both from the education standpoint and that hesitancy to adopt new things <coughs> standpoint, how, how do you guys think about that and how has it evolved? Uh, education is actually something that's pretty core to to me. That I I think it is it's in in itself. Education is super important. Um, but when we when we go down into more of the the micro aspect of education of particularly the digital uh, the digital route of digitization of of these wall rooms, that's completely different story. Now, I, I think maybe one of the one of the parallels I usually like to draw is um, maybe I'll ask you a question back is, do you feel like your parents are uh, digitally savvy? Uh, I I would say among most elder people, uh, still not too bad. They can, you know, do their YouTubes and Facebooks and, they can do digital bank payments, so it's uh, okay. not too shabby. And Wang Lei? I think it's a clear no for me. Okay. Yeah, oh. My mom still does not know how to uh, like book a, a Grab, right? Okay, okay. Uh, I learned something new today. Food or use Google Map. Yeah, but she does yeah. know how to like, use Facebook, scroll TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> okay, very good. Yeah. That, that was the, that I, will, I will use you as an example because that was the example I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Is that, do, do your parents use WhatsApp, for example? Yeah. Probably yes, right? probably master at WhatsApp and they probably have more friends than you do. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, <laughs> and I think that, that why I'd like to draw that in, as an example is that if you think about it, why would we classify our parents as digitally or not digitally savvy yet they can use TikTok, that they can use Facebook and WhatsApp? What is with these things that make them digitally savvy? And it's actually about utility. I go back to this utility thing. It's because there is a draw, there's a usefulness of it. TikTok gives them entertainment. Facebook gives them connections. WhatsApp gives them communication with uh, apparently their daughter because <laughs> they, they might need to find you somehow. Right? Um, but but that's, that's the key thing. I think education is all around connecting the dot of why is this useful for you in your life? And that mm. this is where we build that, use that human connection to uh, create, find that utility. And I think expressing this over time is, is actually hard. For, for us, I, right now, the, the thing I'm, I'm trying to solve is... Um, other than telling a story, how do you show someone that this is actually useful for you? And I think this is my, you know, how I think about the second stage of education is that I want to use technology to build a solution in which if you just follow the, the, the technical, if you use the technology, you will immediately find benefit. And one parallel I can, I can draw with that is, uh, for example, Robo investing, mm-hmm. as as investors sometimes, uh, if you're a retail investor, you invest in the stock market, you're very likely to lose money. You're well, not very likely. You are more likely to lose money than not. Whereas if you follow a robo investor, because it's investing on algorithms, removes emotions, it's actually better for you. And so with that, uh, and this was me in 2014 when robo investing started come out new. I actually put some money in both places at the same day on the same day and just to see what the growth was and it turns out robo investing was actually quite it, it actually showed great returns and this is what i want to do with ula is um be able to show the the returns um and benefits from utilizing and relying on the technology that we give and i think one of those things that 
uh, we're starting to do is actually starting to use um, uh, AI and ML to build in recommendation models to mm -hmm. see uh, what should you as a store owner be selling in that particular area? Because we know what's going on around you. Uh, can we give you better insight into into uh, how to maybe price better or, or supply, source your store better? So those are the things I think are part of this education that I, I think it need not be very direct mm -hmm. education, but it could be very indirect education yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, in a way, I, I think this made me realize that sometimes when I think about educating someone that is not so digitally savvy, I think of it more as like a little bit top-down. Um, I need to tell them what to do, what they should be doing, what's so cool about it. And what you just said, it's a lot more like you're on the same level. You're just trying to show them a map where it can help them get to somewhere they want to get to faster, better. Like, much it's, better. It's, it's all about it's showing the value. Yeah. All about yeah. showing the value. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And and so and earlier you mentioned that you guys have started like a BNPL product for small business itself or for you know working capital. I mean this is more like a macro question, not so specifically with Ula, but we'd love to understand how you guys look at this whole uh you know, there's an explosion in this all BNPL services for, you know, consumers, businesses and everything, right? And mm -hmm. and why did you also decide to go for a BNPL type solution versus I guess for business and working capital, there's a lot of other credit type products that could have been done, right? I'm pretty curious about that. Yeah. I think there's a lot of lenses to take on this, but um, for, for me, I, I, I think with the, with, with BNPL is it's relatively easy to understand. Um, in, in my opinion is with, with financial products, you don't want to give something that is super complex to someone who doesn't really understand the the underlying dynamics of it, right? And I think uh, the value that we can create with such a simple product is that what do we give back to the store owner by offering this? Is that you can actually, you know, I, I think I said this earlier, is if you can sell a product before you pay for it, it's it would be it would be great. It'd be fantastic. Um, and, and I think that's, that's what we're, we're aiming to get is assuming we, we can predict volume and pr demand in a particular store. And we say, let's say the, the local, local bottled drink here is, uh, called, uh, Tepechuk and very popular, uh, sweet tea drink. But let's say if we can predict that you can sell 24 bottles in a week and uh, we will, we'll let you have this consign it over to you. Don't pay yet. But go and sell all this product, collect all the money, and then from whatever it is you, you return, pay us pay us the, the balance whenever um, you know the, the term is up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I feel like that creates it allows this creation of, of opportunity because uh, in that case where uh, let's say it's not 24 bottles a week, let's say someone is only able to afford or they can sell 24 bottles a day. But let's say they can only afford one case, you know, one twenty-four case. Then they have to wait for the cycle, right? Buy a case, sell it, get the money, order another case, and so they're missing days that that they could be making money. But with this BNPL, you could order just seven cases at the very beginning of the week, and then you could just sell all of it. So you have seven days worth of inventory that you didn't really pay for, and you pay for it at the end. And so overall, I would say this actually enables 
more commerce to happen because you're not constrained on whatever money is in your pocket. Yeah. So I, I think from the simplicity perspective, I think that's the that's the way to go, and it provides clear benefit that I could just like explain to you in in a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um. I also want to like take this chance to shift away from uh Ula, uh to your own career. So you are an engineer, and I have a lot of engineering friends around me because I graduated from an engineering program. So I I think at this point, um, a lot of them are considering or thinking very seriously, like. What is it that do they want to become a manager at some point in time to lead a tech team or to switch course or to stay as an engineer? So I hear a lot of that question. Um, what's your take on this? And at what I, point do you yeah. decide to like switch? Yeah, I, I I love that question because I I love answering that question. It's like I've I've developed this answer over so many years, and oh, wow. it's so core. <laughs> it's so core to me as a person. Uh, it's it's literally what what excites me <laughs> and so uh, maybe just a little recap on, on my personal journey is that i stayed an individual contributor as as an engineer who was writing code for about nine or ten years in my in my career and it wasn't until then that i actually flipped over and throughout my early days in my career i always thought much like probably your friends is that i love solving problems i love solving i like writing code don't take me away from this. But inadvertently, I would get, as managers left, my skip levels would go and tell me, hey, just take over the team. Do the, these things. You're good at it. Just just hang on. And then whenever a new manager come in, I would happily step back down into doing my regular role. And what this taught me over time, and everybody kept on telling me was, Alan, you're very good at this managerial role. Why don't you do it? And I was super against it because I was like, uh, managers are evil. Like I don't want to go into the dark side. <laughs> I just want right. to go in and write code. Just leave me alone. And so that was that was my perspective on things. Yeah. Until uh, at some point in in my career, I ran into or I didn't run into. I joined the team of a very decorated Amazon engineer, uh, and, uh, and I'll give him a uh, a call out. His name was Flint Weiss, uh, and I joined his team. Uh, he had at that point been at Amazon for I don't know six seven years, uh, long time. He's still there, by the way, and uh, he we, we still chat. Uh, he I joined his team because I was like I want to learn from this guy because his name is on the code in all parts of the com uh, company. It, it was amazing. He's like almost godlike at, at, to me at that point. <clears throat> and so I joined his team, and uh, I remember the second day or the first day he sat me in a corner. He's like, Well, I'm going to be the manager of this team very soon. And I, and I remember sitting in shock and I was like, why, why did you take the dark path? And why did you throw, I, I, I think I said to him, why did you throw your career away? Those are my exact oh, words. Wow. And strong he words. said, strong yeah, words. strong words, strong words, because it was a strong feeling to me. I was yeah, like, yeah. Oh, this, this, this guy I wanted to, to learn from is, is going to dark side. Why? And so, uh, he, he told me one thing and he said, uh, at some point in your career, 10 fingers and 24 hours a day is not enough. And what he meant by that was the impact you can create through writing your own code and expressing your ideas through code code will be uh, will not be enough. You'll have too many more too many ideas and the only way to have more impact is through leadership and through uh, management through having others follow in in your path and uh, I, I think that sounded crazy to me when I heard it but it was that ninth or tenth year when I was I was contemplating on my 
goals in my life that I, I realized, oh, shoot, this is really the time when I don't have enough time to go do all the things in my head. So I went into the managerial path. And, and so going back to this, you know, at this storytelling session, going back to uh, the, the main question is, I think that that is key to think about is when you feel like that there's too many ideas that you cannot accomplish in your head, that's a great time to, that's one of the options to expand um, the impact to, to lead team, to manage a team. But for me, it was also time to give back to the community. Like with 10 years of experience, I could see the, the juniors coming into the industry. They had no good management. And for me, I was very lucky. I had a string, a string of very, very solid managers. And I also saw from my friends who didn't have such great managers that the career trajectory was very different. So for me, it was a way also, also giving back to show them what good management looks like. And therefore, uh, in, in, you know, conversely is what is bad management? Therefore, they can run away from bad management if they see it in the future. <laughs> and I think that's probably one of the um, core reasons why I, I, I still do this is because I enjoy and I, I love giving back to the community and, and sharing what I've learned because it's just very core to me. I think the, the development of people around me is what gives me the, the most joy. Even I, I, wow. I feel even, you know, just maybe like a year back, I was also an, uh, you know, uh, individual engineer. And I also <laughs> always had this uh, point of view, like, oh, what, you know, what this manager's doing, you know, just uh, spend all the meetings and talking. Just, and meetings, just, yeah. Why are you just talking? Yeah, look, we're building shit here, you know, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great way to put it. I love it. Love it, love it. Yeah. So then following this track, right, what, what does it take to be a good, manager or more specifically what a a good tech lead yeah i think a, a good manager understands the it's all about balance when do you step in and when do you step away um stepping in is is knowing that when through experience obviously you can see that uh the impact of getting something wrong, the cost of doing something wrong, if it's very high, that's when you step in because you can't afford to let it go wrong. Um, but if the cost of failure is low, I, I always choose to step away. Regardless if I know the answer or I don't know the answer, I step away because if you get it right, that's good. It's a positive learning. If you get it wrong, it's a good learning too. And everyone, every, the great thing about failure is that once you fail once, you know how bad the feeling is and you'll never do it again. And I think everyone needs to fail. The the poor, and this is why micromanagement sucks, right? Micromanagement is all about getting in your face and making your decisions all for you. You don't learn anything. The only great learnings come from people who are able to step back and, and let you fail. And I think that's maybe the maybe the one thing I would, I would say about great management is uh, being comfortable for letting people around you fail, as long as it's in a safe environment, right? It must be difficult though. When you see things going wrong around you and you're like, I can stop that, but yeah, you do have to, it's almost like you, you, you pick your battles, right? You, you yeah. just have to figure it out on, on what's important to stop and what's not. Especially if you're in a fast growing startup, I guess it's even more, uh, oh, I need to not let this fail. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think in one of your interviews, you mentioned that you have a team in India and a team in Indonesia. So, 
And I think you say also it was quite easy for the team that was based in India to understand the problems that Warren's faced in Indonesia. Mm. I'm curious, like, how, do, how important do you feel it is for the tech team itself to be close to the customer and for them to actually understand the problems that customers face? Yeah. Because they're building a product, they might not need to be so direct to the customers, right? <clears throat> it's a fantastic question. And, and for me, I... Uh, I, I think it is super important for uh, anyone in the company to actually be close to the customer. And uh, coincidentally, this is actually one of our uh, our, our values is actually, uh, you know, be close to the customer. That's like our, our top value. Um, the, the reason why is because if you don't have the empathy and you don't know what your customer is doing, you can never build the right solution. And and maybe we've we've all seen, you know, in, in, in tech, you've seen that infographic with multiple panes where a project, a, a uh, what is it? A project manager describes something, a product person thinks about <laughs> yeah, something yeah, else, yeah. and then the engineer yes, does yes, something, yes. and then you, you deliver something to a client which is completely broken, right? That's what happens when you build in silos. And and for me, I think uh, how how we've overcome that is uh, it, it's actually been a very big challenge during COVID uh, because a lot of the original plans, which was in my budget, I actually have a line item for uh, for tech team travel because I really believe that people needed to be with the customer. Mm -hmm. And so I have this line, I'm still there. We have a, I have a huge budget that I haven't used, so I should probably use it for, for a party and my finance <laughs> team will probably kill me for making that comment. But um, it, it, it's super important. And so how we've been trying to bridge this mm -hmm. in uh, you know, 2020, 2021, when we can't travel is, for example, we'll, we'll do, um, when we do market visits or when we do a warehouse visit, we'll do a live stream. And this is this is you know oh. hats off to our our um, uh, operations team because when we opened up a new warehouse location, for example, they will do a walkthrough and they'll say that this is this is what's happening here, and it was a two-hour live stream throughout an entire warehouse just to understand the process and having the empathy of what is going on so they can build the right software and the right mm -hmm. solutions to solve the right problems, mm -hmm. and for me. I think that is that is super important, and thankfully, um, Indonesia is opening up its its borders again. And mm -hmm. so, I think in the next month or this month, next couple of weeks, we will have uh, some folks are trying to plan around how to get into Indonesia from India. So, I'm pretty excited to to see that happen when if, if it does. But uh, yeah, COVID did really throw a wrench in that that uh, that that problem. And, and actually. Touching on that uh, tech talent point, right? I'm, 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 I mean, just personally curious. So, like, I would love to understand. And I know you have engineering teams in uh, India, so. But in terms of like Indonesia, how how are uh, how's like the tech talent market like? In, yeah. You know, I I think I will uh, speak for the rest of the world and all of the world is that tech is hot. It's so hot that I don't I don't think there's even a a there there's not anything to describe it. It's just so uh, it's so it's so hot. Um, India's in India's its own <clears throat> thing. It's been creating and baking for the last twenty mm -hmm, years, yeah. where uh, there's a abundance, not abundance. There's actually a lot of engineers, a lot of great engineers, mm -hmm. but there's still a lot of demand. Yeah, Indonesia's interesting because the tech industry hasn't had a lot of time to bake. And if you think about the the biggest startup, the biggest local startup is is going to be Gojek, right? Mm -hmm. Gojek is, I believe, eleven years old, and so and and with eleven years old, they haven't seen scale until five six years ago, and so really, you think about it, the startup ecosystem being 10, 11 years old, 
scaled startup systems haven't been around for five or six years. And so the people who have seen and built for scale in those years, there's very few of them. And so it's hard to get that institutional knowledge. Mm. Um, in Indonesia, and they're very hot, very, uh, very much in high demand. And so uh, for us, it's we have to make sure that our, our team is relatively balanced. We expose them to uh, how to build scale systems. And that that's part of my role as the CTO is to make sure that the uh, this balance of knowledge and this knowledge is actually shared amongst the team. So we actually do a lot of internal knowledge sharing to make sure that the this this information and this education can be passed around even um, uh, within the team because you know my my end goal of this is you know i value the the time that our team puts in and i want everyone to come into ula obviously i don't want them to leave but if and when they do leave which is inevitable at least take something away from it and be a better engineer that is that is all all i'm looking for i I know ali had mentioned like you had this uh, um, working with this amazing engineer in Amazon, and you know there was some people. I'm sure throughout your career across different countries, there have, have been some pivotal moments that have shaped who you are today. I would love if you could like maybe reflect back on maybe one or two of them as well. That and how that you know made you into like shaped you to who you are today. Yeah, we'll say my first pivotal series of moments was mm-hmm. was was Amazon. I joined Amazon uh, when it was a tiny company. This is 2006, I believe. Oh, there's wow. only 2,900 uh, in 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 tech, right? Very like it sounds like a big company, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it wasn't like uh, trust me, like 2,900 people, not 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 a lot. I was gonna stay there for for two years, and then two years became four, four became six, six became eight, and I kept on extending this because I was enjoying what I was doing so much because the problem statements were always engaging and the way the company ran was was very um, welcoming or very very easy for a young hungry engineer to, to understand or, or to, to build a, a relationship with and I, I think why I call that out as, as one learning is that's that's great culture and great leadership. You know, th- those are two ingredients that are impossible to replicate. Those are these are things that you spend so much time trying to curate, but no one can take that away from you. This is something that is part of the company and part of the DNA, and I think this is why personally I try to spend a lot of time doing this at at Ula, and that's one of one of my 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 big learnings throughout uh, throughout that. I think my <clears throat> second big learning was um, my move from the U.S. to Europe. Uh, when I joined Booking.com, and that learning there was, I went from the west coast of the United States, the mecca of technology, Silicon Valley, whatever names that we have, tons of names about yeah, that, yeah. to something that was not necessarily tech haven, but one of uh, Booking's, you know, core values was being very diverse, and so because as a travel company, it had to be diverse. A lot of people from different parts of the world, you know, me from coming from North America to, you know, Brazilians coming from Brazil to, you know, people from Iceland, from Norway, from different parts of Europe, from Russia to from China. Uh, yeah, actually, there was actually a couple of Indonesians actually uh, wow. who, who were there. <laughs> but point there was that was the most diverse group of people that I have ever met, worked with, interacted with, and more importantly, managed. And I think that as a as a turning point in my my career was actually 
uh, being able to develop myself in being uh, empathetic to different working styles, different people, different cultures, um, but also showing me the the unity that can be built even amongst different cultures as long as you you build the the culture correct and i think this goes back to, to my original learning of you know how do you build that strong culture and i i see that culture is or company culture overweighs and it outshines individual culture and what people bring in it allows them to bring their best self if you will um so i think maybe those those two um were, were very uh times in, in my life and, and actually figuring out who I am as a leader today. Super. And, and, and I guess in the last two or one plus two-ish years, the, you know, on this uh, fast-moving rocket ship called Ula, what has been something that has really surprised you? Like something you may have had a point of view of going into this path of entrepreneurship and then, but in reality, it turns out pretty different. Maybe maybe the, the biggest realization for me is actually... Uh, the development of my own role, right? Uh-huh. Uh, two years ago, when when I committed and I had this uh, this this title in my head, I thought, "Oh, great! I was going to be a CTO. I wonder what that means." But I, I had this I had this thinking in my head that you know, being a CTO would be great. I get to go set technical direction. I get to go build cool things. I get to do research and development. This is going to be amazing. And fast forward two years, well, what am I actually doing? Right? Uh, I've actually delegated uh, all of the most of the technology to my team. I'm super thankful of, for for my team for being there to support me on this because I I believe in this thing where the person who's closest to the problem gets to solve the problem. And since I'm so far away from from these technical problems, and now I I shouldn't I actually have <laughs> removed myself from the decision making uh, stream unless I'm absolutely necessary to break a tie and then then I go down deep into it. Um, but I think that's probably my most uh, su- like surprising learning uh, that I didn't expect was the role is so much different. It's it's actually around uh, leadership and support and 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 being that the communication fabric between our business leaders how do we solve their problems or our customers problems through technology and that that's kind of where i'm i'm at is at being a translation layer uh or being an information hub i don't know how you describe it but i'm i'm this and the central uh, spot where where a lot of translation can happen, and my team gets to execute as, as they want. Uh, all I'm doing is just making sure that I'm, I'm setting the right vision and also mm-hmm. setting the right strategy. Um, but all in all, I, I think it's it's been a great ride overall, and I'm I don't regret a second of it. Uh, but that is something that was unexpected that, that <laughs> now has happened, and I, I'm I'm curious on how my role will change yeah, again in the next definitely. year or two. Wow. Um, then I think two years in, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are just starting out on this journey? Well, uh, maybe the, the, the one thing is that the advice is what you put in, uh, what, what you get out of it is directly proportional to what you put in. I think... Uh, hard work is underselling the founder rule, but there's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that, that go into this. And I, I think 
embrace it. Uh, for for me, I had one one bless blessing, if you call it that, is uh, you know this this world pandemic that kept me at home, and without much else to do, I all I had to do was was pour my my time and energy and effort into into this business, and I think it paid dividends afterwards. Um, and that's my I, I don't know if I would I would say that that's necessarily advice to say uh, you know cut out all your social life and, and just pour all your time into your business <laughs> but I think the reality of it is that uh, finding finding the balance is obviously very key uh, knowing what the limits are but if you maybe maybe think about it in this way where and an hour invested into your your business will return this massive ROI in the future. I think that that's the right angle to look at it. Is how much time do you want to invest into yourself and your business? And I think that's a perfect way to end our podcast. And we really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us, Alan. Thank you. It was it was great. Uh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. If you like what you heard, please help us subscribe, rate, and review. Let us know what you think and tell us who else you want on the pod. You can go to ricepeoplepodcast.com where you can find every episode of this podcast complete with transcripts and show notes. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you next week. <laughs>